Chapter 142 of Farney the Vampire, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Floyd Wilde. Farney the Vampire, Volume 3, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 142 the wedding morning, disruption of harmony and the new acquaintance, the conclusion. Accident, strange to say, had taken our old acquaintance, Admiral Bell, to the house of a lawyer, there to transact some business, as well as to lodge at his house. The fact was, the old admiral hearing that a brother officer was in trouble, one who had shared with him the dangers of the sea and the fight, he came to town to see, himself, what could be done, and finding the affair beyond his comprehension, or at least beyond his power of personal interference, that, in fact, it required the aid of a third party, and that third person must, of necessity, be a lawyer. He determined to employ the man who happened to be conversant with the circumstances of the case, and this was no other than Mrs. Meredith's friend, Twizzle. However, the admiral's good will toward the race who follow the law, not being so great as his philanthropy, he determined to watch every stage of the proceedings, and to permit nothing to be done without his knowledge, and to see that nothing was neglected. Hearing from Mr. Twizzle the affair that was to take place, a sudden crotchet entered his head, that he should like to be present at the ceremony, and he broached it to Mr. Twizzle, who turned to his daughter to ascertain if it were at all possible. That young lady was desirous of shining among her acquaintances, as one who could introduce an admiral, and who did not like the idea of Margaret Meredith being so fine a lady as she now attempted to make herself appear. Indeed, she would have been willing to have assisted in raising her some species of mortification. She felt more than true pleasure in the disaster that would be the cause of such feelings. There was a very general dislike to Miss Margaret Meredith, and the truth was, she was much more than usually arrogant and proud and took all imaginable methods of vexing and mortifying those around her. But there is little to be said about that. The consent was brought back to the attorney, who felt somewhat elated at it, and communicated it to the admiral, with some remarks upon the kindness and condescension of the persons who had done him so much honor. This, however, only had the effect of drawing from the admiral the word swab, and then he became silent, and did not appear to be at all taken aback by the knowledge that an East India colonel was the bridegroom on the occasion, and one of a very large property and singular behavior. The evening before the marriage was a busy one. The young ladies had to arrange and rearrange all their finery, and the bride herself had the task of seeing how she became her bridal dress, to do an infinity of other little matters, and to contemplate the change that was about to take place in so short a period. A few hours more and she would become a wife." The colonel himself did not in the least fall off in his ardour. He was particularly anxious it should on no account be delayed after the day fixed. A later day he appeared to have the utmost objection to. Indeed, he declared he would do anything if it came but a day or two earlier. However, this was considered impossible, and the young lady was permitted to have her way, though it was expressly stipulated that it should not be an hour after the appointed time for he declared himself dying with impatience to call her his own. "'Now, Ma,' said Margaret, as she sat talking to her mother the night before, "'Now, Ma, I hope you will not give any of these people countenance when I am gone, and throw off their acquaintance. You will be firm on this point, for my sake.' 
I will, my dear, said Mrs. Meredith. I will. Then when I come back, I shall know more of the colonel's mind about where we shall live and how we shall live. He must let me have something handsome. I have no doubt but that he will. He does not appear to be a close-handed man. Quite the reverse. And all things considered, we shall be able to make a very agreeable living out of it. Why, yes, my dear, I cannot doubt it. He is no doubt a man of property, and can well afford us enough, and some sum as pin-money, indeed. He is too liberal now, to be otherwise, by and by. Perhaps he will keep on this house, and pay for proper domestics, and keep a carriage. What a change it will be for us all, and how the neighborhood will stare. Yes, ma, they will. But suppose we were to reside out of town. We should have our carriage driving into town, as a matter of course, and now and then sleep in town when we made up a party or went to the theater. Yes, my dear, what time shall you see the colonel in the morning? Not before I am ready to go. To church? Well, but you will have some breakfast with him. No, he will be in his own room, I dare say, till late. He will scarce present himself before the time has come to start. You know his habits. He does not get up very early, and I do not expect to see much alteration. At eleven o'clock we are to be at church. We breakfast at nine. You know, so we shall have time. Oh, he is sure to be down to breakfast. There can be no doubt about that, indeed. He must be called for the purpose. Of course, there must be some deviation from a regular rule upon extraordinary occasions like the present. Well, well, there may be. But have you given all the invitations you intended to give? And have you got answers to them so as to ensure their attendance? Oh, yes, that is all safe and fixed. We shall have a good many here by half-past eight in the morning, at the latest. But you must contrive to let me have money very soon, or to send me some up, as I am getting very short, for I have laid out a great deal of money lately, and much more than I could, under other circumstances, spare or afford. Of course, Ma, you will not lose anything by this. I shall take care of you. Not a penny that you have laid out, but what shall be repaid, and with a handsome return. But do not think about this. It grows late, and I must to sleep. Do, my dear, and I will wake you in time in the morning. The morning came, and some of them were about early. Mrs. Meredith was up, and so was Margaret. She could not lie so late as usual. She had done much, and yet she had much to do still. It was really astonishing to see what there was to do. No one would have believed it, and even Margaret became surprised. The morning was now fairly come. The servants were about in the house, and the neighbors were up and about. She could hear her mother chiding and scolding. She could hear the sound of her voice, and she began to believe there was now no time to lose. The hour of nine was now gone. The knocker and the guests had been heard for the last half hour at the door, and she could hear the voices of the guests below, some of whom spoke audibly enough. Then they soon after descended to the breakfast room, which, by the way, was the drawing room, as there was not enough room below. The colonel, at the same moment, entered the room, and a vast number of congratulations were given and received from side to side with the utmost urbanity and goodwill. The colonel, for the first time, had thrown on one side the green shade which he usually wore, but he looked remarkably pale, though he had still the looks of a hearty and healthy man. The paleness which seemed to be constitutional, was very extraordinary. But that was explained by the colonel saying that he had been so ever since he had the yellow fever, which had had that effect upon his complexion. There was much rejoicing at the occurrences that were now in progress. Everybody praised the viands. Everything was of the best and first-rate quality, and there were many attendants, 
which made it so much the better, and the more comfortable, as everybody had an abundance of everything. Mrs. Meredith now shone in the greatest triumph. There was none so great and grand. She patronized everybody and appeared remarkably condescending, considering she was the mother of a daughter who was about to marry a retired East India service colonel. There were few who did not understand fully the nature of the condescension of the lady herself. Besides, she was the presiding goddess of the feast. Among those who had been invited was the Miss Smith and Mr. Smith. This was the young lady who had been so terrified at the attack that had been made upon her the first night that Colonel Deverell lodged there, and on the night he was so terribly vexed and disturbed. Mrs. Meredith had invited them, because they were people of means, and Miss Smith could not now do any mischief, because the colonel was pledged to Margaret too far to retract, and as there were several young females, why, the more the better, because it would divert his attention. Miss Smith, however, came out of curiosity, and because it was a wedding party, which is the delight and admiration of all young females, and Miss Smith was no exception. Mr. Smith was civil and polite, and hid his internal dislike to the colonel, which he felt and could not account for it. Neither did his daughter. She had a great aversion to him, but at the same time suppressed it. The colonel was courtly and complimentary, and made civil speeches to such as spoke to him. Indeed, he never for a moment lost his self-possession. He stood in a less stooping posture than usual, and he was considered a tall and handsome man, a fine man. Mr. Twizzle, said the colonel, I am happy to see you, especially gratified to see you. You will be witness of my happiness today. You will mark my progress in this affair, and learn what lesson it may teach. That is the way we should pass through life, Mr. Twizzle, is it not? Gain knowledge by experience and become, in old age, a wise man? Why, yes, oh yes, said Twizzle, who felt there was something in the remark that touched him to the quick, and he winced under the smart, but he thought it might have been accidentally given and the colonel was quite ignorant of his disasters, and yet it was a very home thrust, without any previous introduction to it, that made it all the more uncomfortable, and he merely replied, I am happy to see you, Colonel Deverell, and to see you so happy, and the young lady, who I am sure deserves to be happy. In fact, I think you both deserve happiness, I am sure. I wish you every imaginable joy, and it gives me great pleasure in seeing it. I am sure you do, sir, but you do not seem to eat and enjoy yourself. I am so occupied in witnessing the felicity of others that I had forgotten it. Moreover, I expect a friend to be present who happens to be late. He is quite a stranger to all present, and therefore I wish to countenance him as much as I could on that account. Then I will not press you now. Perhaps you will do me the favor of introducing your friend to me when he comes, yourself, and I shall be most happy to receive him. Thank you, Colonel. You do me much honor." I will accept of your great kindness, and do myself the pleasure of presenting him to you, and to Miss Meredith, whom I hope to see soon changed in name. I hope the time will now be very short. What hour is it? Half past nine, said the attorney, consulting his watch. At eleven we must be at the church. Well, if we leave at half past ten, then we shall be there in ample time. I would it were over, and that we were on our journey. Ah, you are impatient, Colonel, said Margaret, as she came up to him. My dear angel, replied Deverell, bowing, how could I be otherwise when you are the object of my affections? It is not impatience to leave this good company, quite the reverse, but it is because the change of scene, traveling, and change of air will do you much good, and is, I can see, quite necessary for you. I think it will do me no harm, said Margaret, but here comes Ma, who really looks tired. 
Well, my dear, I am a little fatigued, but you know, I shall have ample time to recover myself. I shall have nothing to disturb my repose. Indeed, Mrs. Meredith, said the colonel, I am sure we must alter that. We must find some other kind of employment for you, and not suffer you remain hidden at home. You have catered so well for us this morning, that I am sure you are a most valuable acquisition to a household. With such a superintendence as yours, we should have everything in the utmost plenty, and at the proper moment. Ah, Colonel, you are flattering, you are. We shall soon show that we are not flattering, I hope, said the Colonel. My dear Madame, you are the life and soul of the whole company. What should we have done without you? I hope all your friends are happy and comfortable. I do not know them well enough to pay them all that attention and respect they deserve. Exactly, Colonel. They all know that well enough. And you are fully alive to the honor you do them in being present in the midst of them. Who is that young lady who was looking here just now? inquired the Colonel. Who? The young lady with the elderly gentleman by her side? Yes, I should like to be introduced to her, said the Colonel. Oh, certainly, said Mrs. Meredith, vexed in her own heart that she had invited her and her father now for she had no wish that any one present should be future acquaintances. But there was no help for it. She must introduce them, and accordingly she went up, with the best grace she could put on, to them both, to request they would be introduced to the colonel, who desired the honor of their acquaintance. There was no hesitation, of course, and they at once advanced to meet him, and were introduced to the colonel as Miss and Mr. Smith. I am most happy to see you, sir, said the colonel. And the young lady here is your daughter, I can see, by the family likeness she bears to you. Miss Smith, however, could not repress a convulsive shudder as she looked upon the colonel. It might have been his complexion, or it might have been that his features brought some terrible recollections to her mind, but she could not for a moment or so speak. The young lady is ill, said the colonel, who noticed the emotion. What is the matter, Clara, my dear? said Mr. Smith. What's the matter? You are ill. No, no, said Miss Smith. It was a, a sudden, sudden dizziness that came across me, I dare say. I shall be better by and by. I am sorry it should have come upon me now. Ah, my dear young lady, said Colonel Deverell, drawing up to his full height and looking gravely, but speaking with the utmost courtesy. You have nothing to regret respecting the occasion. The illness itself is a matter of regret to us all. I am sure, however, let us hope it will be but temporary and that you will be able to wish me joy and my beautiful bride. You see, Colonel Deverell, ever since the night she was disturbed by the strange attack of what she believes to have been a vampire, or something that had the form of a man and a taste for blood, she has been affected thus. Dear me, said the Colonel, what a shocking thing, a very shocking affair. I think perhaps the young lady is subject to illness, and he touched his forehead as much as to intimate an insinuation that the young lady might be somewhat affected in her intellects. No, sir, quite the reverse, said the father. I myself saw a tall, gaunt figure gliding away, which filled me in an instant, and I lay half a minute stunned. God bless me, said the colonel. This affair is quite romantic. If a German writer had such material by him, what would he not make of it? There had been a loud knocking at the door, and someone announced but nobody took any notice of it. Colonel Deverell did not hear it, but stood talking to Mr. Smith, while Admiral Bell was introduced by Mr. Twizzle, who led him towards the group, explaining what had happened. By God, said the Admiral, do you see how they are crowding about the poor girl? Why, they'd extinguish a fire, if there was one. Why don't you give young woman air? If you don't stand on one side, 
I'll put the whole broadside into you, as I would into a Frenchman. The singular address produced an immediate sensation, and many moved away. Colonel Deverell, said Mr. Twizzle, allow me to introduce my friend Admiral Bell to you. Admiral Bell, this is Colonel Deverell. Eh? Oh, eh? These later exclamations were uttered in consequence of the extreme surprise depicted on the countenance of both parties. Admiral Bell's surprise was nothing out of the way, but that of Colonel Deverell was a matter of consternation to many of them. He stepped back a pace or two, and his lips parted, as though he would speak, but he could not. He panted, his eye glared, and his nostrils dilated. Shatter my mainmast, upset the caboose, turn my state cabin into a cockpit, and the quarter-deck to a gambling booth to the whole ship's company. What's all this about? exclaimed Mrs. Meredith. Oh, that odious man! Who is he? What is? Why, ma'am, I'm old Admiral Bell, very well known for having beaten the French and the terror of all vampires. Why, look at the swab. But you ain't going to get off this time. What is the matter, dear Colonel? said Margaret. You are ill. Speak. What is the matter? Ah, said the Admiral. Let him speak, and he'll tell you he's no Colonel, and his name ain't Deverell, or, if it be, it ain't his only name. He is Varney, the vampire. A vampire, said Miss Smith, starting up with a shriek. A vampire, good heavens! I was not mistaken then. That must be the man, and she sank back into her father's arms. What? Has he been at any of his tricks again? exclaimed the admiral, and he made a stride towards him. But Varney, for it was he, avoided him by stepping aside, and placing some other person between himself and the admiral, and then he said, What this madman will say you will not listen to. You, madman, well, I'm hanged, call me a man, said the admiral. I wish I had my sword by my side, and I would teach you how a madman can fight. But you are not going. I have something to say to you first. If he's going to marry that young lady, all I can say is, she will be food for him. She'll never live till tomorrow. Her blood will make his pale face ruddy. Barney stood no longer, but seeing many around him who appeared to have an inclination to stop his passage, he suddenly made to the door, which he secured for a moment on the outside, and then in another he was clear of the house. This was no sooner done than all present, who were staring at each other in mute amazement, and unable to account for what had happened, looked at the newcomer, the admiral, who immediately began to relate enough of Varney that made it apparent to all present that he was not what he had represented himself to be. Amid the commiserations of their friends and their jeers, Mrs. Meredith sold all her furniture, and with her daughter retired to some little place where they opened a small shop to eke out a living by such means. They were unable even to pay many debts they had contracted on account of this marriage, and they were, moreover, ashamed to be seen by their former acquaintance. End of chapter 142 Recording by Floyd Wilde Barney the Vampire, Volume 3, by Thomas Prescott Prest Chapter 142